Gonzalo Lira, welcome uh, on board the show. Uh, give us an idea of you, if you will, of the current state of play in your city. Well, first of all, George, thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's very much appreciated. I, thank you. And your kind words, uh, I think that you overstate bravery and certainly intelligence. Because in a smart man, would he be in this position? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, I'm in Kharkov. I'm in the center of the city. And uh, yeah, today, as a matter of fact, I did a little tour of it. And it's um, the long and short of it is that the at this time, uh, we're a little bit over almost four weeks into this invasion, three and a half weeks. And it's clear that the um, Russians are winning. And the way that they have been conducting this war is more or less what I said at the very beginning of this conflict, which was the Russians don't seek to destroy Ukraine. They seek to capture it, capture it whole and as as with as little damage as possible, given the circumstances. And the other thing, too, is that they are trying to capture the Ukraine army. Now, that might not seem like what they're doing to people who don't understand military matters, but the way that the Russians have been conducting this war, it's clear that they, their intention is to capture both the country and the Ukrainian armed force. And within the Ukrainian armed force, there are the, quite frankly, the fascist element, um, and, and and I do not say that lightly. Uh, you know, there are many people who just, uh, you know, accuse anybody that they don't like of being a fascist. I mean, last I heard on Twitter, J.K. Rowling is a fascist because of uh, of her opinions on, on, on various matters. No, these are actual fascists, and they are proud of it. And uh, these fascists were instrumental in the 2014 coup d'etat. And after 2014, they were supposedly disbanded, but what, what actually happened was that they were absorbed into the Ukrainian armed forces at all levels, at all in all units. They weren't discrete units uh, within the uh, Ukrainian armed forces. There are certain battalions, the uh, famously the Azov Battalion and the Aidan Battalion, that are independent units, but for the most part, these uh, fascist elements are spread out throughout the Ukrainian armed forces. And these are the people that the Russians uh, very badly want to take out. Uh, they want to preserve the Ukrainian armed force for later, because it's very clear that the Russians have no intention of conquering and absorbing Ukraine. They want it to be an independent state but simply friendly to them, friendly to, to Russia. And by the way, uh, my commentary on, in so far as this conflict is concerned, I have to emphasize this point, if you, if you will allow me. My, my interest is to make this conflict as short as possible with as little loss of life as possible. And that's why I try to be as realistic as possible, because I think that what happened is that the Ukrainian leadership, the EU and the United States and NATO, they led the Ukrainian people down the garden path, the, the primrose path of believing that Ukraine would one day join NATO, join the EU, and that once that happened, they would all be rich and happy and it would be a wonderful life. And because of this, uh, they goaded the Russians. The Ukrainian government goaded the Russians and it got to a point where the Russians realized that no promise made by the West would ever be fulfilled, you know, specifically the Minsk agreements, 
that were signed in 2014 and, and were never fulfilled. And, and the, the uh, Zelensky regime and the previous uh, regime would stretch out and just sort of like ignore and just not do what was supposed to be done vis-a-vis -vis the agreement. And so the Russians realized this on the one hand, and on the other hand, they realized that the Ukraines and what is appearing now to be the trigger for this conflict, the Ukraines seem to have been on the brink of invading the Donbass. Uh, and they had amassed their army on the east, on the uh, right on the contact line. And remember when the United States and Europe kept saying that the Russians were surrounding Ukraine, were amassing troops uh, on the border with Ukraine. Well, it was a weird kind of projection because that's what the Ukraine armed forces were doing. They were amassing their armies in the east for a final conquest of the breakaway republics of Lugansk and Donetsk. And what happened was that the, the Russians, in essence, beat them to the punch. And that's why because they were amassed there on the east, right on the contact line. That's why the Russians have been able to encircle that army, which numbers some 60,000 soldiers. And it's very important to understand these are 60,000 frontline combat troops. They've surrounded them. They're actually in, in several, in about four different cauldrons, they're called, which is basically pockets that are surrounded by Russian forces. And the... Um, the Russians basically have cut off the major cities, Kiev, uh, Kharkov, uh, Mariupol, Lugansk, um, Donetsk. They've cut them off. Well, Lugansk and Donetsk are now under control of the Russians, but they've cut off the cities and cut off the armies. There's no longer a centralized defensive strategy by the Ukrainians. And so it's just a matter of time when you have a divided army and divided defenses as what's currently happening. It's just a matter of time before the the, the attacking forces, in this case, the Russians, uh, they're going to take over. And by the way, the reason they call this strategy the cauldron, because what they do is they surround a, a pocket of resistance or a group of soldiers or a city. They surround it and then slowly start turning up the heat, like on a cauldron. And it's a famous strategy that the Russians have employed from the beginning of the 19th century. It's nothing new. It's slow, grinding, methodical. And uh, this is how the Russians are winning this conflict. And what's really interesting is that so many people in the commentariat in the West think that the Russians are losing. And you, you wonder why, because the Russians are taking over towns. The Russians are advancing troops. And you're trying to understand why do the very, very smart people in the West think that the Russians are losing? And then you understand why. And it took me a while for me to figure it out. Uh, because we are so used to, over the last 30 years, that when the Americans go to war, how do they go to war? They send their air force to completely bombard a city, destroy it, annihilate it. They start with the infrastructure, with the electrical grid, uh, telephony, then they go after water mains, heating, uh, uh, you know, heating systems, whatnot. They just systematically destroy all of the infrastructure in the city. And this causes enormous damage to the civilian population, which is either killed or left homeless or flees. And, uh, and once they have softened up, quote unquote, a city like this, which is just basically annihilating the city, then the Americans, or NATO, or call them what you will, the, the global American empire, the GAE, they roll in 
in essentially a mopping up operation. They've destroyed the city and then they roll in and take it over. And, and of course, by that time, there's no resistance whatsoever and the pockets of resistance are trivial. But the Russians don't fight the war like that. They're not interested in destroying the cities. On the contrary, they want to maintain the cities and minimize civilian casualties as much as they can. What they want to do is to neutralize the opposing armed force. And notice, it's neutralized, not destroyed. The Russians are just as happy if somebody surrenders or if an opposing army deserts. They're, they're not trying to kill. They're trying to uh, uh, eliminate the threat that the opposing armed force poses. And so that mentality, um, frankly, is far more humane. And it makes you realize that the American mode of war that we have, we in the West have become accustomed to over the last 30 years is really despicable. I mean, you, you start to realize uh, I am a conservative. Uh, politically, I am conservative. But you and I are, are probably on opposite sides of the spectrum in, on a whole host of issues. But when I used to hear um, men of the left, such as yourself, say that you know George Bush was a war criminal and Bill Clinton was a war criminal and, and, and all the rest of it, I was like, yeah, 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 okay. But comparing the way the Russians carry out a war and comparing it to how the Americans have carried out a war, I stand corrected. I have to fully agree that the American leaders, people like Tony Blair, like uh, George W. Bush, they truly are war criminals. They, they committed unspeakable atrocities um, that served no purpose. They, they, they were just, it was wanton destruction. Because I'm seeing how the Russians are carrying out the war. I am in the middle of Kharkov, and I am speaking to you over cell phone. I have internet, I have running water, I have sewage, I have heat, which is crucial in, in Eastern Europe, uh, electricity, of course. I mean, everything is normal because the Russians did not go out to destroy the civilian infrastructure. They are not trying to conquer cities. They're trying to neutralize the opposing armed force. And you realize that this is the civilized way of waging war. I mean, war is by definition uh, violent and barbaric, but there are degrees of barbarism. And this is as humane as possible, the way that they are carrying it out. And then you realize that analysts in the West, since they're so used to this total destruction and annihilation of cities and, and the complete uh, um, ruin of the people that uh, are being conquered, then you realize that, yeah, of course, from their point of view, since the Russians are not destroying everything in their path, they're, quote unquote, losing the war, which is, you know, the, the situation we're at. Anyway, I've ranted a little bit. Um, ask me. No, you haven't. It's been, uh, it's been uh, absolutely uh, riveting, fascinating. Uh, may I ask uh, why you're there? Why you're sure, there? That's right. Please, how did you end up our man in Kharkiv? Uh, well, uh, what happened, I am from Chile. Uh, <laughs> my accent doesn't make it sound that way. Uh, and I grew up, I spent a lot of time in the United States. My father worked in finance and I went to university in the United States. So I went to Dartmouth and I worked in Hollywood as a writer and then I published novels. And, uh, 
and and then got involved into different businesses. And in what was it, 2011? I uh, 2012. I uh, met a Ukrainian woman um, in Germany because I had some friends in Germany, and uh, I went to visit them. And I was living in Paris at the time, and uh, and you know the, the usual happened. You know, fell in love. She was the au pair of these acquaintances, and uh, fell in love. And you know, now we have a couple of kids. Uh, and uh, well, they are far away from me at this time. And we came to move, to live here in 2016 because um, her family is from here. And uh, I thought it would be you know, nice to live here for a while. And then I, I had different businesses that I had to attend to in London and Amsterdam. And so this was like a good base of operation while the kids grew up and learned Russian and Ukrainian. And, uh, and well, this situation arose and it caught me personally. I was in Kiev. Um, I, was, I went out to Kiev on some trivial business, uh, just some residency stuff that I had to take care of. And uh, I was supposed to be there for two nights, and I arrived the day before the invasion. So I had uh, front row seats to that. And um, insofar as the, the invasion, I, I've had this hobby of being a YouTuber, and I was winding it down last year. Um, late last year, I was just winding it down because, you know, I'd had a good run. It was fun. But what happened was that I started um, reporting on what, what was going on in Kiev, and I would go up and down Krishatik Avenue, um, videotaping myself and showing the sights as the war developed. And uh, what I noticed early on that made me no friends among many people was that the uh, Zelensky regime was handing out uh, firearms willy-nilly to the population. In the end, they distributed something like 10,000 weapons. And at the time, I thought that this was exceedingly dangerous because you, you, you don't know who you're giving these weapons to. And these civilians who are going to use these weapons, they don't know how to use them because it's not enough to know how to shoot a gun. You have to know how to move with as a team. You know, I mean, it's, there's a reason that soldiers train. It's, it's not just picking up a gun and aiming and shooting. You have to know how to move, know how to react so that you are effective and don't injure yourself or other people. And so I thought it was crazy. And I said that criminals were going to get these weapons, and lo and behold, they got them. And I witnessed how uh, there were shootouts in Kiev. I witnessed them, not that I saw them, I heard them. I, I would hear, uh, you know, uh, automatic fire in downtown Kiev, and the distance of it was not more than, say, 250 meters to 500 meters on the outside at a time when it was known that the closest uh, uh, Russian fighters were 30, 40 kilometers away. So it was obvious that what was happening was that these weapons fell into the hands of criminals, as has been later confirmed. And these criminals started using them on the civilian population, on, on each other, setting scores and whatnot. And that's why I started paying attention to the Zelensky regime, because as a foreigner in Ukraine, um, as a foreigner in any country, quite frankly, I think it's wrong for a foreigner uh, to, um, you know, be discussing and having an opinion about the local governance. After all, you're a guest. And so my, my thinking has been always like when I go to somebody's house as a guest, I don't tell them, you know, to change the wallpaper or why do they have the furniture the way that they do. It's their business. And if I like it or don't like it, I have to just keep it to myself. That's always been my attitude. And so insofar as the uh, Ukrainian political situation is concerned, I never had an opinion and I never really paid attention to it deliberately 
so that I would never fall into this trap of having an opinion where I'm a guest and, and not a citizen, where, where as a resident, I'm allowed certain privileges, but I, I'm not able to vote, I'm not able to change, and, and I shouldn't. I mean, that's, that's me, that's my, my opinion, uh, or the way I, I, I think one ought to handle oneself as a guest in the country. But when the invasion happened, I started paying attention to the Zelensky regime for the first time. And I started doing some digging on the Zelensky regime. And I realized that Zelensky himself is an actor, and he is literally a puppet. He was put into position by a, a Ukrainian Israeli Cypriot oligarch by the name of Igor Kolomoisky, who is a nasty character. Uh, this, this oligarch has basically created a television program called Servant of the People and cast Zelensky as the lead and artificially inflated this television program by bribing people and getting a lot of publicity for this show, even though the show in and of itself is fairly mediocre. But it got a lot of people's attention and Zelensky as a puppet was positioned by Kolomoisky and his various associates in the entertainment industry because Kolomoisky was the owner or, or principal owner of One Plus One Media, which is the largest media company in Ukraine. And they positioned Zelensky uh, to be this uh, figure because in the television show, the, the, the Zelensky president of the TV show wants to join the EU and wants to join NATO and sells the dream that Ukraine will be wonderful and will end the corruption in Ukraine if this happens. And so uh, Zelensky is uh, um, in the TV show, he was like the ideal candidate. And so this was transitioned into reality. They even made a political party called Serpent of the People to support Zelensky's candidacy. And, you know, he won the election uh, by, by basically lying to the people and telling them that he would get them to the EU, he would solve the corruption problems, which are very serious in Ukraine, uh, that, you know, he sold them a bill of goods that he could not possibly deliver. And people, unfortunately, bought this story and they elected him. And quite quickly, he started acting despotically. He, um, one of the measures that he did was that he banned um, channels, television channels that were critical of him or of his uh, regime. He banned four of them, as a matter of fact, uh, what, where before he had said that the Russian language should be allowed and it was wrong to prohibit the Russian language. Once he became president, he outlawed the Russian language. Um, and it was very clear that Kolomoisky, the, the oligarch, he was the man, along with other oligarchs, who had funded the Azov Battalion and other far-right neo-Nazi movements in Ukraine that had been instrumental in the 2014 Maidan coup. And it's very odd. This is that let me let me Jewish let, let me stop you there. Yeah, it's uh, it's more yes. than it's more than odd. It is uh, grotesque uh, that the yes. fascists uh, should be mm -hmm. being funded by. Uh, a Ukrainian oligarch who is Jewish. But in the Zelensky yeah, speech to the Knesset, uh, he, uh, let me uh, draw your attention to a very different uh, Israeli point of view. Karline Glick, uh, an Israeli mm -hmm. 
writer and editor, said this this evening after Zelensky's speech to the Knesset, and I'm quoting her, uh, the claim by Zelensky uh, that the Ukrainians were uh, righteous Gentiles who tried to protect us from the Holocaust mm -hmm. is a revolting piece of historical revisionism. She said yes. uh, that the Jews in Ukraine were massacred, not in Poland, mm -hmm. but in Ukraine and by their neighbors. The truth of the matter mm -hmm. is that a, a significant, not the majority, a significant part uh, of particularly Western Ukraine has historically mm -hmm. been anti-Semitic to its core and fell upon yes. its own Jewish population and massacred them even before the SS trains arrived to take them to the death camps. And I take my hat off to yes. Caroline Glick this evening. She called out Zelensky's lies that somehow Nazism and fascism and anti-Semitism are somehow alien uh, to the uh, nationalist forces in Ukraine, when the absolute opposite is the truth. Am I right? George, you're absolutely right. And George, can I ask you something? What kind of a man can Zelensky possibly be if he himself is Jewish and he is intimately associated with such figures as these? I mean, I have to ask somebody here. What do you think of this? I mean, I would be revolted. I, I, I could not I could not live with myself on a, on a level of conscious conscience. Well, I couldn't Hello? either. Alas, we've run out of time, Gonzalo. Uh, uh, stay safe. You're a very brave and smart man, whatever you say, uh, however you uh, answer that. I'm certain, as so are the viewers, I'm sure, who are, by the way, at record numbers right now, consider you to be one of the heroes of this dreadful situation. Gonzalo Lira in Kharkiv.